Hello everyone and welcome to the January 31st edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Let's get started with our litigation report. A $1.5 million WCAB award for attendant care services has been overturned by the Court of Appeal. Here's what happened in the case of State Farm versus WCAB and Carl's James Pearson. Francesca Aparicio, while employed as a legal assistant by State Farm, sustained injury to her psyche, lumbar spine, and right upper extremity and developed fibromyalgia. The party stipulated to a 100% disability award. Carl Pearson, her husband, claimed he provided her with attendant care services 24 hours every day since 2003 and filed a lien for reimbursement for his services. The lien was initially denied for lack of substantial evidence. This was reversed by the WCAB and the case remanded to further develop the record. The WCJ then ordered the parties to have Donna Barris, MD, conduct an evaluation and to provide an expert opinion on Aparicio's past and present life care needs, including the nature of home care services and the hours per day they are required. Without giving notice to State Farm, counsel for Aparicio and Pearson contacted Dr. Barris and provided her with several medical reports. Dr. Barris reviewed those reports and other information, conducted a three-hour evaluation, and prepared the requested report. State Farm moved to strike the report because of the ex parte contact. The WCJ did not find that these and other issues tainted Dr. Barris's opinion or required it to be stricken, and instead ordered the parties to secure a supplemental opinion to rectify the problems. Subsequently, an award issued providing that Carl Pearson was entitled to compensation for his services and at $30 per hour. The total reimbursement was over $1,520,000. The employer filed a petition for reconsideration which was denied. The Court of Appeal reversed the WCAB in the partially published opinion of State Farm Insurance versus WCAB and Carl's James Pearson. The court pointed out that ex-party communications with respect to the merits with a medical examiner appointed pursuant to Section 5701 are prohibited. There are no exceptions for administrative or procedural communications or for other classes of ex-party communications which are not on the merits. Their prohibition against ex-party communications is a strict rule and no showing of prejudice is required to invoke the appropriate remedy. The applicant and lien claimant violated these requirements in a substantive manner. Dr. Barris should have been disqualified and the reports and opinions should have been stricken and a new medical examiner should have been selected. The court also noted a second problem with the evidence of caregiver services. Many of the services Pearson provided do not constitute treatment which the employer is required to provide the injured worker pursuant to Labor Code Section 4600. The matter must be remanded to the WCAB to redetermine which of the caregiver services Pearson provided were medical treatment under Section 4600 and which were not. 
The court also had issue with the claim for reimbursement for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, since it was not likely that Mr. Pearson would have provided services for that many hours a week. They also noted that the hourly rate of $30 an hour may be appropriate for LVN services, yet some of the services he claimed to provide would not require an LVN, and as such, the $30 rate was excessive. The California Court of Appeal upheld a $72,000 civil penalty against an employer for misclassification of employees. Here's what happened in the published decision of Heritage Residential Care versus Division of Labor Standards Enforcement. Heritage Residential Care Incorporated operates seven residential care facilities. They employed 24 workers, of whom 16 lacked Social Security numbers. Heritage treated those 16 workers as independent contractors issuing them 1099 forms instead of the itemized wage statements required by Section 226 of the Labor Code. In 2008, the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement issued a citation for violating this Labor Code provision. The citation included a civil penalty in the amount of $72,000, representing 288 violations at $250 each. At an administrative hearing, the employer explained that a number of their employees do not hold a Social Security number. So consequently, they treat them as independent contractors since they cannot collect and report tax withholdings. The administrative hearing officer affirmed the citation and specifically rejected the employer's argument that its non-compliance was inadvertent. The employer then filed a petition for writ of administrative mandamus in Santa Clara County Superior Court, which was also denied. The employer then filed an appeal with the 6th District Court of Appeal. The judgment was affirmed in the published decision of Heritage Residential Care versus Division of Labor Standards Enforcement. One of the topics reviewed on appeal was the imposition of the civil penalty of $72,000. Civil penalties are assessed against violators of Section 226.3 of the Labor Code, which provides that the Labor Commissioner shall take into consideration whether the violation was inadvertent. If it is inadvertent, they may decide not to penalize an employer for a first violation when that violation was due to a clerical error or inadvertent mistake. The employer in this case argued that its violation was inadvertent and that no penalty should have been imposed. The word inadvertent is not defined in the labor court, nor was the court aware of any cases discussing its meaning in the context of section 226.3. Thus the court gave the statutory term its plain and common sense meaning and concluded that the word inadvertent means unintentional, accidental, or not deliberate. Using this definition, the court concluded that the evidence is undisputed that their failure to provide itemized wage statements was an intentional act on its part. The imposition of the $72,000 civil penalty was affirmed. And in regulatory news, a new self-insured group funding levels report shows problems with some of these employer groups. The Office of Self-Insurance Plans, or SIP, 
allows qualified small and medium-sized businesses the option of joining with other employers in the same industry to self-insure their workers' compensation liability as a group. All self-insured groups, or SIGs, must be approved by SIP and are required to post a security deposit covering 135% of estimated future liabilities. As of November 2010, the state had a total of 29 SIGs. California has one of the largest self-insurance programs in the nation and has some of the strongest regulations designed to ensure the system protects both employers and employees. Nonetheless, a lagging economic recovery after the 2007 recession has led to decreases in payroll and diminished active membership for some SIGs. A new self-insured group funding levels report was published by SIP in January, claiming that several groups are not meeting funding level requirements. Three plans, the Contractors Access Program of California, the Fabricated Metal Products of California, Workers' Compensation Group, and the Preferred Auto Dealers Self-Insurance Program have had their plans revoked. The Contractors Access Program of California has been declared defaulted on November 18, 2010, and their open claims assumed by the Self-Insurer's Security Fund. Victory Comp Incorporated, a fund for health care and social services, is reportedly meeting less than 60% of funding requirements, and they are required to report their assessment collection quarterly. Three other groups, Auto Dealers Compensation of California, Healthcare Industry Self-Insurance Program of California, and Quality Comp are listed as meeting less than 79% of funding requirements. The Healthcare Industry Self-Insurance Program of California has voluntarily closed to new members, and they are reporting loss and cash balances monthly. Another group, the California Truckers Safety Association Workers' Compensation Program, is reporting to be meeting less than 89% of funding requirements, but this group does not agree with the reported funding percentages, and SIP is doing an additional review. Three groups, Guardian Comp in the healthcare and social assistance industry, California Agricultural Network, and Finish Line Self-Insurance Group in the horse racing industry are reported as meeting between 90 to 99 percent funding requirements. The remaining 18 groups on the list are meeting 100 percent of the funding level requirements or more. It is not clear if funding levels of SIGs in California are following the troubling trend that first surfaced in New York over the last few years. Fifteen New York Group self-insured trusts became insolvent between 2007 and 2008, creating a combined deficit of $498 million. A New York Governor's Task Force called for legislation to terminate the group self-insurance program in New York. However, no such legislation has been adopted. The Division of Workers' Compensation has posted a new Time of Hire pamphlet on its website. This optional pamphlet meets Labor Code Section 3551 requirements to notify new employees about California workers' compensation rights and benefits either at the time of hire or by the end of the first pay period. Susan Gard, DWC Chief of Legislation and Policy, claims that the pamphlet is one way the DWC can help employers and claims administrator ensure employees know what to do if they get hurt or sick because of work. 
The DWC wants to provide easy-to-understand information in multiple languages that meets the needs of the California diverse workforce. The pamphlet, posted in English and Spanish, was developed in response to requests from claims administrators. Pre-designation forms are included as part of the document. <clears throat> this optional time-of-hire pamphlet is presented in a graphic format that can be customized to meet individual needs and is also offered in text-only format in English and Spanish, which gives claims administrators the option to more fully customize the presentation. The text of the pamphlet meets the time-of-hire legal requirements. This new pamphlet is the latest publication helping DWC reach out to assist employers and workers. The California Contractors License Board is cracking down on those who skirt workers' comp regulations. According to an article in the Claims Journal, the Professional Association of Specialty Contractors announced it is working with the California Contractors State License Board, calling upon trade contractors to identify builders, owners, and general contractor personnel who fail to obtain workers' comp insurance for their employees. According to Senate Bill 1254, the License Board is authorized to issue cease and desist orders as well as suspend the license of any licensed contractor that fails to abide by the state workers' comp insurance requirements. The Professional Association of Specialty Contractors is working diligently with state departments and agencies to increase the awareness of builders, owners, and general contractors about the risks of hiring illegitimate low-bid subcontractors. They are concerned that some contractors are choosing to engage in dishonest business relationships, including not obtaining workers' comp insurance and underreporting employees and cash payments. The Contractor State License Board Enforcement Division will aggressively enforce the laws and will be sending letters advising prime contractors of their responsibilities under Labor Code Section 2810 and the new enforcement procedures under SB 1254. Uninsured employers will be issued a stop work order and employees will be required to leave the project with entitlements to 10 days pay. Additionally, contractors found in violation of the law may face legal action, fines, and license suspension. The Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation, or CHESWIC, has announced that the annual Northern California Young Workers Leadership Academy will be held in Berkeley in early February. The goals of the Academy are to teach youth about workplace health and safety and help promote health and safety in the workplace and prevent workplace injuries. And to provide participating youth an opportunity to develop specific action plans to promote young worker health and safety in their own communities, especially during Safe Jobs for Youth Month in May each year. The Young Worker Leadership Academy has been jointly developed by the University of California, Berkeley, and the University of California, Los Angeles Labor Occupational Health Program. The Academy is part of the statewide worker occupational safety and health training and education program administered by Cheswick in the Department of Industrial Relations. The Academy receives additional funding from the California Wellness Foundation. Information about the Young Worker Leadership Academy is available at www.youngworkers.org. The Montana House gave approval to a bill banning illegal immigrants from receiving workers' compensation insurance benefits. 
The measure was endorsed on a 60-39 vote and will now be going to the Senate. If passed by the Senate, it will go to the governor's office for signature. <clears throat> if signed, it will become the first such law in the nation. Backers of the proposal argue it sends a message to those wrongly employing illegal immigrants. They say it would help, admittedly, in a very small way, fix the state's problem with high workers' comp insurance rates. Opponents countered that the workers will still get injured and hospitals will be left picking up the tab for treating them in emergencies. They claim those costs will then be shifted to consumers and other insurance companies. One opponent claimed that businesses who perhaps mistakenly hire an illegal immigrant and pay for their work comp could be subject to a big lawsuit when insurance doesn't pay. Illegal immigration, although not nearly as big an issue in Montana as other parts of the West, is expected to be the subject of several legislative initiatives. Montana now ranks number one in the nation for workers' comp rates and bringing reform to the system has been listed by several lawmakers and members of the business community as the number one issue facing the state legislature this session. On a related front, the District of Columbia Court of Appeals recently ruled that employers cannot deny work comp benefits to illegal immigrants. The court ruled last month that a busboy injured in 2005 while working at a bar and restaurant is entitled to lost wages for a temporary total disability even after his employer discovered his undocumented alien status and fired him. The claimant suffered an injury when a customer threw a bottle according to the court's opinion. To reach its decision, the District of Columbia Court looked to the Connecticut Supreme Court ruling in Dowling v. Slotnick. Appeals courts across the country, including California, have somewhat similarly held that the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 does not preclude awarding work comp benefits to illegal immigrants. And in financial news, rising claim severity drove up total workers' compensation costs for cities, counties, and other public agencies in the state last year, despite a decline in the number of job injury claims. According to the Office of Self-Insured Plans, the higher average cost per claim or severity was fueled by higher medical costs. This is the fourth year in a row that these costs caused claim costs as a whole to increase. These entities provided workers' comp coverage to more than 21 million California public workers whose wages and salaries totaled nearly $96.9 billion. The number of employees covered by public self-insured employers last year was down 2.6% from the prior year, which helped reduce the number of reported claims. Despite having fewer workers and fewer claims, however, public self-insured's total claim payments rose 2.3% more than the prior year. The CWCI traced most of the increase to increased medical losses, which have jumped 28.5% from the post-reform low. In contrast, over the same period, average indemnity paid per claim has risen less than 12%. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. 
Thanks for joining us today, and please stop by again next week for more news.